On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamprin today. The city of Hamilton has studied its response to COVID and its ability to handle such a crisis like this. What did it find? We're going to be talking about that one. A great concert is coming up to help people who are needing new kidneys or having kidney health issues. We're going to talk to someone who has lived through that and is part of this. A Hurricane Ian just destroyed huge parts of Florida. A Hamiltonian who's down there will join us. Ipsos polling, finding Justin Trudeau's numbers. Eh, not real good after the election of Pierre Polyev as conservative leader, but is it got anything to do with Pierre Polyev? We'll talk to Daryl Bricker about that one. City Council in Waterloo taking steps to make its councillors safer at a time when people are doing more stupid things towards councillors. And when you're cheating in chess, when you're cheating in chess in the most, uh, well, allegedly, when people are accusing you of cheating in chess in the most unbelievable way, what do you do about that? You got to hear how this person has been accused of cheating. <laughs> it, it is quite remarkable. Stay with us. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The city of Hamilton, the emergency operations center had prepared for a lot of different things for emergencies, for ice storms or tornadoes or fires or other natural disasters. COVID, um, not so much. Let me bring in Emergency Operations Center Director Jason Thorne uh, from the city. Jason, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the show. Should we, I mean, and look, I, I know everybody wants to scream and yell and say, look at all these failures, whatever. Is it realistic that this city would have prepared for something like COVID considering we haven't seen anything like this for decades well, we certainly have prepared for emergencies and, um, you know, the existence of the emergency operations center is, is evidence of that. That's something that predates COVID, but by quite some time. Um, and it's, it's, it's a system that's in place with, with defined roles and policies and procedures around it to respond to emergencies. Um, and, and we do exercises and, and, um, scenarios every year, uh, for training. And, uh, and as you said, a lot of that, you know, has focused on shorter term emergencies, uh, you know, weather events, tornadoes, ice storms, those sorts of things. Uh, what made the pandemic a particular challenge was uh, the, was the duration of it. And, uh, you know, a, a, a pandemic of two years and counting and a mobilization of the emergency operations of two years and counting. Uh, that certainly has set this particular emergency apart from some of the other ones that we've experienced in the past. Right. So we're all looking and yesterday we're looking down at Florida with what was going on. That's the kind of thing, not necessarily obviously a category four hurricane. I don't think we, if that happens in Hamilton, something's gone horribly weird, but, um, but something that is again, a momentary emergency, but is it realistic? Even looking forward as you plan for these things, is it realistic to have a plan in place to be able to deal with something that goes on for two or two and a half or three years and to handle those kind of things? Is that a realistic thing to do? It, it's certainly a challenge, and, and I think the key thing is you can never anticipate what the emergency will be, whether in terms of duration or the types of impacts it will have on the community. So what we try to prepare for through our through the, the programs we have in place, the policies, the training, is 
it's all about sort of roles, responsibilities, structures, processes, procedures that you could then try to apply to whatever the emergency might be. But of course, every emergency is going to be going to be different. It's going to have its surprises. It's going to have its things that uh, that you hadn't anticipated in a training session. Um, and uh, and as I said, certainly with the pandemic, something that that's gone on for over two years um, is 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 a real challenge. And um, you know, there are also you know great lessons learned that come out of that. And actually, we just recently reported back to council on some of the um, some of the lessons learned, some of the recommendations going forward for dealing with with an extended emergency. And of course, we all hope it's not another pandemic. But if there is something else that has a long duration, uh, there were certainly some lessons learned here for not just for Hamilton, but probably for every municipality, for every business owner, um, for for every resident. Um, I, I, I think there's been a lot to learn about this uh, about this experience we've all gone through together. One of the complications that this poses is, and you brought this up as a as one of the the things we've learned, is to dedicate resources to have them separate from the everyday resources to handle something like this. But is it realistic to have to hire to have people on board ready for these long term things if we never have one of these? Is that not adding more staff or more resources that for many 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 years are just going to sit there? Yeah, and I don't think the recommendation is that sort of you 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 have people kind of hired and sitting and waiting for an emergency. Um, I think what we learned through this process, though, was you know it's one thing for an emergency that might last for a week for for existing staff to kind of set aside their day to day work and focus on responding to the emergency. Uh, but as that timeline spreads, um, it becomes a challenge for staff to both be responding to the emergency and especially as we were starting to bring back all of our regular services and all of our regular programming and reopening city facilities, trying to keep the, the day-to-day business of government going um, at the same time we're responding to this very significant emergency. So that certainly creates strains. Um, and then we had some recommendations in our report around, if, you know, if that were to happen again, how might you resource up to uh, to respond to something mm-hmm. like that? How can you kind of have some, some staff who can set aside their day-to-day work focus on the emergency and have others who are who are delivering those day-to-day programs and services. And I was going to ask if it had to be someone who was specifically trained or set aside for this, because we did hear through the course of the pandemic that there were times when government workers couldn't do what they were supposed to do, so they were at home. Is it possible that you have people who are trained or, or assigned to certain jobs that could be brought in in a circumstance where you say, I know this is not your normal job, but here we want you to jump in and do this. Can that work? Can we, can we build the plan that that's how this could operate? Yeah, I think those are the kinds of things we want to take a look at. And, um, you know, importantly, and it came in very handy in this particular emergency was, was the depth we have in the emergency operations center. So every role actually has three people in it. So for example, in my role as the director, um, if I'm not available for some reason, there are other people who are, who are trained who can step into that role. So I can tell you that depth that we had in the organ, in the, in the emergency operations center, that depth of training came in extremely helpful. Cause of course, in a two year emergency, you also just get the normal things like people retiring, people taking on new jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that we had, you know, not just one person trained in each role, but multiple people trained in each role um, was certainly um, very beneficial and very helpful to our response. We've got to run, but one more thing really quickly, and that is it's very tricky. How do you, what is the line or how do you determine when something has become past the line of a momentary thing? Because, I mean, is, is it two days? Is it a week? Is it two weeks? So when, when would you apply this and think, okay, we're moving into that? Is there, is there a specific moment when that has become short-term to long-term? 
I don't think it's a question of a specific moment because, of course, it also depends on how broad the impact is. Is it just in one particular geographical area of the city or one particular program area in the city, or is it everyone? And of course, with this pandemic, it was everyone. So um, I think it does become sort of a judgment call as an emergency is, as the response is rolling out, and especially as you're starting to say, okay, we're going to keep responding to the emergency, but we want to start bringing back all of our programs and services. There's a point in there um, where I think, as I said, one of the lessons learned is, um, do we need to kind of segment staff a little bit to say, okay, these, these staff will continue to focus on some of those core emergency response responsibilities while these staff go back to dealing with the day-to-day. It is, uh, it's a really interesting one. There's, uh, people can read more about this. There was a piece in the spec by Joanna Frickatich the other day. Uh, Hamilton never trained for a pandemic that would last years and affect absolutely everything and everyone. You can read that there. Uh, Jason Thorne is the director of the Emergency Operations Center. Thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is a good story, this next one, because, you know, we, we, we have, heaven knows we have enough sad stories of bad outcomes. This sounds like a good story of something that was difficult, a health issue that was difficult, and yet we were able, well, not we, I, I did not participate in any way, but the, those in the medical field were able to do something amazing to help a life, and now there's an opportunity to help other lives in a similar way. I want to bring in uh, David Angus uh, to join us. David, how are you this morning? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I'm excellent, thank you. Tell us about this. You were, 25 years ago, uh, you were suffering from kidney disease, correct? Actually, I was, um, I started suffering from kidney disease when I was six months old. Oh, And at the age of 19, 25 years ago, I received a kidney transplant from my father. You know what? There are some people, and I, I realize that this may be really simple and dumbing it down uh, on a Thursday morning, but there are some people who may not know what that exactly means. What, what, for someone who's going through what you were going through, what did that actually mean in real terms? Well, what happened was um, over time, my uh, kidney function uh, deteriorated uh, very slowly over the years of, uh, until I was 19. And so it just means that the, your body's ability to filter toxins, uh, in my case, became less and less. And so I was getting more and more sick. And so uh, in 1997, uh, I had to have both of my kidneys removed at St. Joe's Hospital there in Hamilton. And um, I was lucky enough that my father was a really good match. And so he was able to donate his to me. Did you know, like, how early did you know that your dad was a match? Had you gone, because some people, we hear these stories of people who search and search and search to find someone. Was this something obvious right away, or did you have to go down that path? I started to um, realize, and I was starting to be told by physicians around the age of 16 that uh, transplant was my reality. And so um, both my father and my brother started to get tested. There was a series of different blood tests and genetic tests they had to go through. And so it just happened that my father ended up being a slightly better match than my brother was. So we had known for probably close to a year that it was going to happen. I actually have a friend who, uh, who, well, friends, father and son, who also did this a number of years ago. And to me, it was a... It was a remarkable thing that the, in that case, it was the son giving it to the father, but it was a remarkable thing that somebody would do that. Cause I know that there, you know, he was your dad. I'm told though, it's not a, always necessarily a really comfortable process to go through. Like there, there is a sacrifice in a physical sacrifice involved in doing this. Um, there definitely is. And it, it can affect the quality of life of the donor as well. And that's why um, in 
my case, I see my father as a hero, and no um, doubt, and he's uh, he's been able to live a really good quality of life since donating. And um, uh, luckily, uh, aside from some recovery time after surgery, he was able to resume his normal life. You, of course, though, owed him forever. You've cut his grass every single time since then and <laughs> washed his car <laughs> nonstop. Uh, Whatever he asks, he gets don't put now. ideas into his head. Scott. <laughs> <laughs> so this, um, so what we're talking about is, I mean, you, you went through this and you are, would it be fair to say, um, honestly, that you're one of the lucky ones, that you had a good donor that was close and that both of you had had a positive outcome? Because it's not always that way, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it was kind of frightening, um, again, being at the age of 19, to kind of be told that the odds are kind of stacked against you and that, you know, the rejection of a transplant is common. And uh, But we had incredible care through St. Joe's, and uh, they, they really took the time to monitor everything. Uh, their renal transplant clinic is filled with a lot of compassionate people that helped us uh, monitor everything from our blood pressure to our weight to our intake uh, of liquids and output and um, just really checking up on the blood work and just making sure that things were going the way they should be going. Well, and you mentioned St. Joe's. That's really what this is about because this weekend there is a concert, Guitar Strings and Kidney Things. I mean, first of all, kudos to whoever came up with the name of that one because that's a cool name. Uh, but Guitar Strings and Kidney Things, tell me about what this is. Yeah, so as we were approaching the 20th anniversary a few years ago, I, I felt the need to give back and I was talking to my dad about what we could do. And music has always affected my life and it's been therapeutic to me. So I, we came up with the idea of trying to do a concert to give back to Hamiltonians that are affected by kidney disease. And so this Saturday is our third one supporting kidney care at St. Joe's. And uh, we're lucky to be hosted by Bridgeworks over on Barton and Caroline Street. And uh, we have the Born Ruffians and Lafayette playing for us. And all the money that's raised goes back to the kidney care program uh, at St. Joseph's. And you've raised, as you say, in those three years, like 40,000 bucks. So it's a, it's a significant amount of money that has been raised and will continue to be raised for this. Um, how many people are, do you know how many people say in the Hamilton area or in general are in the same category that you were? Is this common? The kidney program at St. Joe's, I believe, um, supports roughly 1,000 to 1,200 people. And wow. I do know that when we were doing the concert to help re, uh, redevelop their dialysis unit back in 2019, uh, there was over 600 individuals a week that were getting dialysis treatments at St. Joseph's Hospital. So um, they, they support people from Niagara Region, Brantford, Halton, and of course Hamilton. The, uh, as you say, the concert is at Bridgeworks. It is on Saturday night? Yep. Saturday night. Uh, what time? And how can people get there or tickets or whatever else? How do people participate and donate if they want to? There's lots of ways to uh, participate. So you can go to bridgeworks.ca to get the tickets. They're $35 each. Um, we have an amazing online auction going on right now, which is at 32 auctions backslash GSKT, the initials of our concert. And then you can go to St. Joe's website and find ways to donate right there through the foundation website. This sounds like something that if you've got this rolling now, this sounds like something I'm, I'm guessing that you plan to do for a while. 
that would be the hope. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely a dream and a vision to be able to use an experience like this to make an impact in the community. And uh, my dad and I also are very fortunate to know that we are in a position where we can do that, where we can, we can uh, knock on doors and go on radio shows and stuff and mm-hmm. be able to talk about uh, our success story in the hopes that other people who have um, gone through this journey or are going through this journey know that you can live well with a kidney transplant and you can have a good quality of life. And it's, it's a little bit regimented at times, but you know, you can, um, you can, you can truly have a good quality of life and, and um, be successful in your everyday. It is, uh, as I say, it is a good news story that uh, that you're talking to us now, and that uh, that your dad has been able to have a, a, as you say, a great life. Uh, David Angus. It's called Guitar Strings and Kidney Things. It is Saturday night at Bridgeworks, and uh, once again, Bridgeworks.ca. Thirty-two auctions backslash GSKT, or go to the St. Joe's website to find about find more about it. David, thank you for this today. Thanks so much, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The video that's come out, the photos that have come out of Florida overnight, um, starting yesterday afternoon, and the, I mean, the word that keeps coming to mind is devastation. If you look, especially in the Fort Myers area where it seemed to really hit first and hit hardest, the, some of the stuff that, you see is just, it's unbelievable that there are, there is video and photos of pretty much the entire downtown of Fort Myers being underwater. There are also, uh, in typical fashion, fake photos coming out. Be careful of those. This is, this is one thing. This is, this is a good lesson about stuff online. There are photos and videos circling of sharks swimming up the streets of Fort Myers um, they get your attention for sure. The, the pictures and the videos do. Someone has pointed out though, that these same videos were bouncing around years ago online. So, you know, you sure if, if it seems too ridiculous to be true, it probably is nonetheless, maybe, maybe that happened, but not these ones. Anyway, it is, uh, it has been a terrifying, I would think time to be down there, especially on the coast, but, uh, it is the hurricane has gone right across the state. G. Petrie is a Hamilton resident. She is currently down in Orlando. She joins us now. G, how are you this morning? Hello, G. Are you there? I am. Hello. Oh, hi, G. I'm. How are you doing? Are you safe down there today? We are. We are definitely safe in Orlando. What has so obviously it's a little bit different when it comes right on shore in Fort Myers and then in the central part of the state. But we have heard that the hurricane has blown across. What was the experience like? Did you get much in Orlando? It was very, very windy. So just to kind of put things in perspective, this storm went from one coast to the other across the entire state. It's over 260 miles wide. So there was really no one in Florida that wasn't affected by this. So we had for the past, I would say, solid 15 hours, wind gusts of 150 kilometers and steady 100 kilometer winds. So it's been it's been very windy and so much rain has been crazy. Did you venture outside at all or did you watch from your hotel or wherever you are? I ventured out for a moment under a very large overhang last night around eight o'clock before it got really bad at nine. But it was it, it was I would not have gone for a walk. I can tell you that. 
What, what is it? I mean, most of us, we've had gusts here. I mean, certainly in, in Hamilton, we, we will have storms where you get wind gusts, but not to that level. What's, what does it feel like? Can you even stand? You can stand. Well, like I said, I was over the under, uh, on the, uh, under the overhang, but even under there, your hair is whipping around like crazy. You're, you're getting wet. So it's, it is crazy out there. Um, there's debris falling off the trees, bark, tree branches, things like that. And it, what's amazing is just how long this lasts. There's no break from it. I should have asked at the beginning, um, you don't live down there. You're a Hamilton resident who isn't, hasn't moved there, as I understand. You're down there on a trip. How, how did you end up down there now? My husband had a conference down here, so I decided to tag along for a mini child-free vacation. <laughs> yeah, nice vacation. <laughs> yes, so yeah. that's how we came down here. And I'll be honest, when there was talk of a tor- or hurricane ahead of time, I thought everyone was talking about Fiona still until the day, we were, the day before we were to leave and we saw what was going on. It was too late to cancel. What, I mean, were people where you are, were people doing anything unusual to prepare? Because, I mean, certainly on the coast... They were telling people to get out and people who were staying were trying to board up or whatever else. Did did anyone do anything in the Orlando area or was it just stay in for the most part? It was mostly stay in. I can tell you um, the governor here declared a state of emergency really early on Sunday. uh, So that was really good. And everyone started getting alerts on their phones on Tuesday. And I mean, like every hour you got an alert that a hurricane was coming all the hotels were really good. Um, you know, they emailed you the notifications on the Disney app of what to prepare for, what's going to be closed. They moved everyone because Disney closed a bunch of resorts that were close to water, even the man-made water that's here. They moved a bunch of people, and so they've been very accommodating with kids, families, everything. So I mean, you are, you, know, you are talking right? to us, so I'm assuming it's on a cell phone. Do you have power right now? Oh, we do have power, yes. Okay, so that's, I'm I'm a little surprised only, well, maybe not. I mean, that we've heard millions of people don't have power, but I guess most of those, again, would be on the coast uh, where it was hardest hit. So, um, so what do you, I mean, having been through part of this then, because again, when I say part of it, I mean, you've been through it, but not like they were on the coast. Um, would this be something, if this was to happen again, if you were to go on a trip again and someone were to say a hurricane was coming, would you stick around? Or would you say, no, I've seen, I've had a taste of this. I get what this could be like. I think I'll get out of here. If I was inland, like Kissimmee, Orlando, inland, I would have stayed. We didn't have an option to leave early. There was no flights. Like we were proactive on changing our flights and making sure the hotel can accommodate an extension of our stay. And I think if I were inland, I would stay again. But if I was anywhere on the coastline, I would have hightailed it out of here. That's for sure. Does it, and again, having, having seen it now, and, and when I say seen it, 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 it I'm going to reiterate, it's not the same as the category four, almost category five on the coast, but do, can you even fathom the people who decided to stick around when, when the warnings are coming about the size of this, can, can it even, can it make sense to you in any way for the people who said, no, I'm good. I'll ride this thing out on the coast. No. It does not make any sense to me because I see this and we're, you know, miles and miles away from where it really hit. Like you said, Fort Myers was just completely devastated, completely. So I couldn't imagine wanting to stay and, you know, kind of like 
placing a bet to see if it maybe should pass in turn. It is, uh, yeah. Well, listen, we're glad you're well. We're we're glad that, that I mean, we don't seem to be hearing too much about numbers of people dying. Hopefully, I mean, that's the 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 one silver lining, I suppose, although it, that may still be to come. But uh, but yeah, unbelievable amounts of damage and uh, and scary times. G. Petrie, a Hamiltonian who's down in Orlando right now. G, thank you for taking a few minutes this morning. Thank you for the invite. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Once Pierre Polyev was elected as leader of the Conservatives, you knew the other polling was going to come out in rapid succession. We're going to find out what people think about Pierre Polyev and whether he has a chance to win an election and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's politics. Well, we're getting numbers and we've had a number of these, but we're getting some numbers and here is, uh, if you're a liberal supporter, it's probably not great. If you're a conservative supporter, you're probably pretty happy. According to Ipsos, in a survey done exclusively for Global News, 33% of Canadians say Justin Trudeau deserves to be re-elected. That is down. 67% say it's time for another party to take over. Now, no one says in there, well, they do say, when they say 67% say it's time for another party to take over, that means anybody but the liberals. It's not just one. It's not Democrat or Republican. However, the NDP doesn't seem to be about to take power anytime soon, so this would seem to be a boon for the Conservatives. I want to bring in Daryl Bricker uh, from Ipsos. He joins us now, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Uh, Daryl, thanks for the time this morning. Good morning. This would not be seen as much of a surprise, right? Almost always, when al- almost always, when there is a new leader of one of the major parties, there is some kind of bump or some kind of effect. Yeah, we do see a bit of a bump when new leaders come in. But uh, what's interesting here uh, in, in our polling uh, for Global News is that uh, uh, we don't really see much of a bump as a result of Pierre Polyev. In fact, if you take a look at conservative support in, in our polling, they're only up by a point, which is basically unchanged from our last polling. So there's not really much of an effect. What we do see, though, is a decline in the Liberals, which is really more of the effect of the current issues environment and what's going on in the country and how people feel about the government. Is this a case where someone, uh, speaking of, say, the Prime Minister or his party, have simply outlived many people in this country's welcome? Yeah, with the prime minister, he's kind of gone through the full circle of D's, right? He's gone from he's gone from darling in 2015 to disappointment in 2019. In the last election, 2021, uh, he was really a significant number of Canadians really disliking him, and right now you see that that dislike has persisted. Mm. So, is this something that I mean, from your polling in the past, when you reach the point of dislike, is that something you can turn around? Because he has said, now whether he'll do it, but when they had their liberal caucus meetings in BC the other day, I'm sticking around to run for the next election. Is this something that that he is going to be able to flip or once people have decided they dislike you, that that's kind of locked in? Well, they're going to go with a a strategy, which is basically, you know, the devil you know. Uh, So Pierre Polyev. Another D. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the other D. Um, uh, Pierre Polyev is is still a cipher for Canadians. I mean, one of the things that we saw in Global National's polling uh, through the course of the summertime was that while conservative partisans were moving strongly based on what was happening in the leadership campaign, Canadians basically weren't watching. Uh, And it'll be interesting to see if they're even still watching um, or have started watching uh, at at this point. But um, uh, so they're they're looking at Polyev and they're saying there's a lot that people don't know about this guy. I mean, a lot of people are assuming, particularly things like his support for the truckers. 
And they probably are sitting back and thinking, this is something that we can really drive hard at, at, at Polyev and, and maybe make him such a toxic option for Canadians that the devil you know is better. So I expect that you know what we're going to see over the space of the next period of time as the Liberals' position for the next election campaign is a real specific attack on Pierre Polyev. So sunny ways are so far in the past that we, sunny, we don't even remember sunny ways anymore. That's gone. Oh, this is the depths of winter. <laughs> and depth, depths of the winter in the Arctic, it's going to get very, very dark. Can the, Okay, so if, if you have a party with the leader who came in under the guise of sunny ways suddenly going sour, does that make people dislike him more? Or again, is it somehow a winning strategy? Well, you know, if you think back, we, we've been to this movie before. And it was 2004 and 2006. So 2004, Paul Martin, although not you know personally really disliked the same way that Justin Trudeau is, um, he ran campaigns that were very, very dark against Stephen Harper. It worked once. In 2004, we held on for a minority, but he lost in 2006 because people had just had it. So the question is, what are we going to be going through, 2004 or 2006? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple other things here that, that seem to be at play. One of them is when this election comes, uh, you would expect if Jagmeet Singh is still leader of the NDP, he also was going to be teeing off more, you would think, on Justin Trudeau because that's his vote demographic, you would think. You would think, maybe not. but And, and so Justin Trudeau may be taking it as a dislike attack from all sides. Yeah, we really saw that in the last election campaign, uh, the Jagmeet Singh... Uh, really, in many ways, was uh, most Justin Trudeau's most capable critic. But Jagmeet Singh seems to be confused, and Canadians are confused about Jagmeet Singh, too. I mean, mm. so we go out and we ask, you know, who do you have a favorable opinion of? Uh, although none of the three leaders are in positive territory, the least negative is Jagmeet Singh. So they kind of like him. Canadians kind of like him. They don't really dislike him. But when we ask, you know, who would make the best prime minister, he comes in third. So they see him as a nice guy, but he's not ready for the job. Well, and I heard something. I heard something recently, and I don't know if it was in your numbers or another one, where a lot of people are saying, "I don't know what the purpose of the NDP is right now. They just seem to prop up the party as opposed to being a critic, and and we're not really sure what we're supposed to do with them." Yeah, I think that was a columnist was writing writing about okay. that. But this is a fairly standard thing. I mean, basically, what Jagmeet Singh has become is Ed Broadbent. You know, you know, Mister Congeniality. Um, you know, he's a nice enough guy, but we don't really see him as being qualified to be the prime minister. So uh, the problem that he's got is is actually being seen as a serious contender for the job. Uh, and, you know, over the space of the next couple of years, maybe he'll be able to demonstrate that under this agreement that he has with the Liberals. Uh, but um, at, at the moment, uh, the, his problem is people, as I said before, see him as a nice guy, but don't see him as qualified for the job. The person who's going to get the most attention, obviously, because he's the least known, is Pierre Polyev. Sure, sure. And, uh, and, we got to go, uh, Daryl. Daryl, we got to go, but just very quickly, one last thing. Do we did, was any of the polling asking why, what the specific thing was that made people dislike Trudeau? Yeah, they just think he's in over his head. I mean, he's he's sixteen points ahead of Pierre Polyev as a leader is seen as being most in over their head, which is astounding, given that he's been the prime minister for seven years. 
Yeah, it's an interesting. Uh, it's it's interesting. You find on the uh, online one in three Canadians believe Trudeau should stay in power as Tories edge ahead. Uh, that headline may want to say two out of three Canadians don't believe Trudeau should stay in power. That seems to be the way it usually is. But anyway, uh, Daryl Bricker from Ipsos, thank you so much for the time today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I wrote a piece for the Spectator. And it was talking about what was happening to city councillors here in Hamilton, specifically to property owned by councillors here in Hamilton. Just to go down the list, Jason Farr had his car vandalized. Maureen Wilson had her home egged. Fred Eisenberger had a coffin brought and left on his porch, as well as a number of other things. Brad Clark had his home egged three times. Narinder Nan had her house egged. Judy Partridge had damage to planters out front of her house. Arlene Vanderbeek had her car door kicked in. And you could say, well, that's, you know, so what? That's coincidental. Well, it was coincidental until you realize that all of these things happened around the time of very controversial debates at city council. And the odds that this many councillors of all people would have vandalism done to their property or threats brought to them seems rather high when you realize not everybody in the city has this happen. It seems unusual slash very concerning that this would be happening. Well, in Waterloo, uh, we're not alone. In Waterloo now, the city of Waterloo has passed a motion allowing future council members to have security systems put into their house and bill it to the city because of what is happening in politics. Diane Freeman is is councillor of Ward 4 in Waterloo. She joins us now. Councillor, thank you for the time today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, clearly, you know, as I say, when we look here in Hamilton and we thought maybe this was unique to us, clearly this is not unique to us. This stuff is going on all over the place. Yeah, there's been a real change, I would say, in decorum. <laughs> um, I would say in the last 10 years, I've served uh, as a counselor since 2006, and it seemed around 2010, 2012, that the anonymity that's provided tools like Twitter and Facebook and so on, really ramped up a discourse of unkindness. And, mm. and it, fueled, it fueled anger in people. And, um, and I've seen emails come through that are, that are just really, really cruel, honestly. And that's not something that you've seen before. I mean, look at the social media part or, or texting or tweeting might be new, but that didn't happen with even handwritten. I mean, uh, 10 years isn't that long ago, but th- this is something that you're clearly seeing as something different. It was definitely something different. When I first got elected, I felt that most people sent emails to me that were professional, that, that genuinely sought to affect change where they were looking for help with an issue and now I just get emails that, you know, essentially start with, how could you be so stupid? Or you're always stupid. Or um, you don't care about people. You just need to wait for people to die on our streets before you're going to make a change. Um, you know, just uh, and a, a colleague of mine got an email around leaf collection because someone missed the leaf collection day and they were so so angry that they had to bag their leaves they ended their email with i know where you live and see that was the thing i was going to ask is because look i i i don't i don't encourage people to write to their counselors and start things with you're so stupid it seems self-defeating i mean you're, the, the, i don't think counselors are going to spend too much time reading that one and giving it much thought if that's where you start but there's a difference between that and I know where you live, where it becomes yeah. threatening. And so has that changed? Has Even if you're getting a lot of angry, mean emails, 
has the jump to I'm actually concerned about my safety changed? I would say that I personally don't think I'm going to tap into this security money. Like, I don't personally feel that my family's at risk. It did happen once in in my time on council, just as you had described um, was happening in in Hamilton. The city of Waterloo was dealing with an issue that was also being dealt with in another municipality. And in that particular case, people had thrown a Molotov cocktail through a window or rocks and other things. And and that that was one of those moments where I really took a step back and thought, my goodness, when I put my name on the ballot, I didn't actually think hmm. that I was potentially putting my family at risk. Was that the one? Was that St. Catharines or Niagara somewhere down there? Because that I, happened there as well. That there was rocks, yeah. I think, thrown through a counselor's window and yeah. and stuff sprayed on their door. And and again, you know, it just it to me the 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 civil discourse has always been you can rag at the counselors all you want, but you don't take it to their home. That That is yeah. the one thing that was off limits. And that seems to have changed for yeah, some. And, and I, and I think we're seeing it more broadly at every level. I mean, it's, it's incredulous to me that someone would have an online conversation about how they wanted to rape Mr. Polyev's wife. Mm-hmm. I mean, how yeah. terrible is that? And then the person of course says, well, it was supposed to be a joke. And I'm thinking, explain, explain to me the jokes have a punchline or something funny. I'm not sure I see the, you know, it's not an explanation. That's not, and for the family, like if heaven forbid that you had received an email like that, I'm sure you're not looking at that going, oh, that's, I get your joke. I get, no, that would be terrifying. Yeah, and we had a really controversial issue around a faith community building that was being considered for approval, and it was shocking to me, um, some of the emails that I received uh, on that piece, and and it, it really had devolved into a safety issue for a lot of people. And I and that was a big that was a big piece that Mayor Jaworski had raised around our council meeting. Well, I may not personally feel threatened, or I may not, I may not be, you know, in a group that's racialized or a faith group that is continually a target for, for hate-motivated um, speech or hate-motivated actions. There are folks that would that may not choose to put their name on a ballot because they don't feel that they could be safe if people had access to them as a public figure. And if if this security system allowance makes that individual feel more willing to serve in a public office, then I think that alone is a reason to approach this. Yeah, and I guess if we if we can't, uh, we I, I assume that we have to come to the conclusion that, well, we can't change everyone's behavior or expect everyone to behave, so we then have to take the next step. And if this is the next step, so be it. Yeah, essentially. I mean, I have I have four legged security in my house, um, <laughs> and and not everybody's not everyone's comfortable with that either, right? They would rather have some kind of a a security system that they could lean into, and and truthfully, a security system does provide the police with pretty important information if something were to go awry. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's so unfortunate that we're even having this discussion, but I, I, I do understand it and, and it's just, uh, whether it's in Waterloo where you are, or whether it's here in Hamilton, or as I say, I think it was St. Catherine, it was St. Catharines or Niagara or something like that, where they were throwing rocks through windows. It's just, it's something has changed. I'm not exactly sure what, but, um, 
here we are. Uh, Councillor Diane Freeman from Waterloo, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. Thank you for inviting me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. What is easily the strangest story in the world for the last couple of weeks, it involves a series of chess matches specifically between the world's top player and a 19-year-old American grandmaster and allegations of cheating because the younger player unexpectedly won. But it's how the cheating has been alleged that truly um, takes this story from being an interesting thing to a, really? The allegations are, in some corners, that the 19-year-old um, I'm trying to say this delicately, was using vibrating anal beads <laughs> to direct his moves. I, I don't make this stuff up. Someone was feeding him information through buzzing in the back end that was helping. Uh, let me bring in Keith Denning. He is with the Chess Institute of Canada. Keith, how are you this morning? Oh, I'm fine. How are you? I am good. I, I, of all the things that I never thought I would be talking about, it would be this this method of cheating or whether this was happening at all. Um, I, I, I think, I think honestly uh, we can uh, dispense with that one. That was oh good. That's, oh that, good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that started, that started as, that started as a uh, uh, sort of a, a blue sky thought about how on earth could uh, Neiman have cheated and, uh, and some, uh, you know, some, guy on uh youtube um because a lot of chess players uh have youtube channels and, and and such uh uh came up with this uh outlandish idea uh that nobody believes <laughs> so yeah well um, it was uh, put high high marks for creativity for coming up with the thought i suppose and and, ab- and now that someone's <laughs> mentioned it now that someone's mentioned it you know someone's going to try and see if it can work but maybe not these guys but this is an amazing no story regardless of this because what you have here in any sport and we'll call chess a sport i don't mind calling chess a sport we have in any sport you're always part of the intrigue of sport is that the underdog can sometimes win and yet in this particular case we have a story where the suggestion seems to be there is no conceivable way the underdog could beat me because i am simply that good a player therefore there must be cheating what do we do with this well you know, I, I'm an instructor at Chess Institute of Canada, and the first thing that we teach our students is respect, respect for yourself, respect for your opponent, respect for the game, fairness, and the sense of, uh, you know, being a good sport. It's fundamental to the game. And you're right that at the highest levels, uh, chess is a sport like any other. Um, there's a serious desire to win. And simply being trustworthy is for 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 people at that level. Uh, being tr- being trustworthy, being a trustworthy imp- uh, opponent is as important a currency as as, as their extraordinary le- extraordinary level of skill. So, one of the things that's incredibly unfortunate about all of this is that. Um, is that Hans Niemann, he's a 19-year-old grandmaster. He is an incredible player. And uh, and his reputation is uh, damaged probably beyond, possibly beyond repair. For any um, reason? 
Keith, I mean, is there well, is there reason to believe that he cheated, or was this just someone saying, I can't be beaten by this person because I am that good, and therefore he must have been cheating? Well, the problem is that Neiman has admitted to cheating online in the past. Um, so he has that, he does have that reputation. He's certainly not the only, he's certainly not the only person who's ever cheated uh, in chess. Um, but in this particular case, in the Sinkfield Cup, I can hardly imagine how he could have done it because in, because in those sorts of tournaments at the very top level, everyone is screened for devices. So, like, the players are not even allowed to bring their own pens because it's possible, I suppose, that you could secrete some sort of uh, device in, in a pen and, and, and use that to tip you off to certain things. Uh, there are no spectators, so who is there to, um, to you know, slip information to you through a, a, a nod or a wink? Um, so I, I'm satisfied, personally, and I, I, you know, I am, you know, I'm an, I'm a sort of a junior level arbiter. Uh, I just actually took the uh, arbiters course. Uh, I was in St. Louis actually uh, for the beginning of the, the the Sinkfield Cup, when the chief arbiter of that tournament says. There's no cheating. There There's was no, no cheating. cheating. Then we got to go with that. It's, no, it's a, it's yeah, a, it's a we got to run. Unfortunately, Keith, it's a, it's a remarkable story. It really is, and I'm I'm really? I'm highly relieved that there's no vibrating anal beads involved because uh, that that's that's a story. No, I don't think anyone's ready for at this point. Uh, Keith Denning, Chess Institute of Canada. Thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.